Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you're listening in. This month, we are partnering with Pantsuit Politics on this episode. We will say all the things that need to be said because these times require truth. With love, but truth. It's necessary. Beth Silvers and Sarah Stewart Holland are the hosts of Pantsuit Politics, a podcast birthed in the wake of the 2016 election. I've asked Beth and Sarah to come talk with us on Freedom Road about what alliance with women of color will require of white women in 2020. We would love to hear what you think. I've been thinking about this for a long time, talking with a lot of white women about this, and I really want to open up this conversation across the country. So, hey, would you help me? Would you actually tweet about it? Would you tweet your thoughts? Would you tweet back to us and let us know what you think? You can tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us, and keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. We love it. We love the back and forth. We love the feedback. And we really do ask, please keep it coming. 94% of Black women and 68% of Latina women voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. But 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump, not the white woman running for president. The majority of white women voted for the man who bragged about grabbing women's private parts, who was accused of raping multiple women, including his own wife. 53%. I will never forget sitting around the conference room table in Sojourners when I worked there the morning after the election in 2016. The white women around that table wailed. So did I. But there was something in their voices that held another level of grief. One woman actually named it. She named it well. She said she felt betrayed. Not only by their white fathers, pastors, and brothers who demanded sexual purity from them, but then 63% of them voted for a rapist. No, these white women were also wailing because they were betrayed by their mothers. They were betrayed by other white women. Let's talk. All right. So Beth and Sarah, thank you so, so much for agreeing to do this. I'm so excited to share this podcast time with you. And when we first started thinking about this, the world was different, right? Very different. (laughs) This is so crazy. Oh my, I'm still, I I hear you guys. I literally feel like with the coronavirus, we are living inside a sci-fi movie. Yeah. And I don't like sci-fi movies. I don't like <laughs> I really don't. I don't like sci-fi movies because they're yeah, scary. And I don't scary. like scary. I have enough scary in my life. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. You know, black folk, that's the thing. 
<laughs> black folk are always looking at white folk, especially white women who always go down into the cellar. And we're always like, go back, go back. Don't you like, know what's going to happen? <laughs> this is a sci-fi movie. Don't you know? <laughs> like, you're in a movie. You need to, don't do that. Don't go check. You're going to die. Anyway, so <laughs> this is literally how I feel. I'm sorry. We're kind of getting off topic. But hey, in some ways, it's actually, in some ways, it's not off topic. You know, this is how I feel when I see the pictures of white evangelical women and men worshiping at church on Sunday after everybody's been told to hole up in their houses. And they're like, no, no, you know, Jesus is strong enough for the coronavirus. You're like, don't you know we're inside a sci-fi movie? Like, (laughs) you're going to die. And not only that, but you're going to pass it on to black people on the way because you're going to stop at like, you know, McDonald's or you're going to stop. You're going to stop at Starbucks and, or although, never mind, that's kind of crazy because they're all closed. So anyway, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that that is a most interesting addition to our conversation, because if we're talking about allyship and we're talking about the challenges that have faced our country and the changes that the 2020 election could bring, Mm -hmm. in many ways, the coronavirus is the great equalizer, right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't care how much privilege you have. It doesn't care how much money you make. You can't pay yourself into a ventilator if there is not a ventilator available, right? Yes, that's exactly um, right. So I think that that in many ways, you know, it's a challenge. It's a unique challenge that we haven't faced in a long time of this level. Mm-hmm. And it does present an opportunity to think through so many of the ways that we interact and so many of the challenges facing our society and the way that we sort and group and oppress or soak up our privilege or opportunity hoard or whatever the case may be, this is a game changer. And your point about the seller and the sci-fi movie, I think, is so connected because the story of how governments respond to coronavirus is really one of our capacity to heed warnings. Mm-hmm. And there is so much well, privilege hello, in not somebody. heeding warnings, you know? Yes. And black folk yes. warning white folk for a long time. Time. Well, yep. what I, I remember when I first started to become kind of conscious about race and the hierarchy and white supremacy, I was actually taught, I mean, explicitly by the person who led the very first pilgrimage I ever went on. He said, you know, people of African descent in the United States have always been the canary in the mine. Yeah. And whatever happens to us is actually bound to happen to everybody else. Because what it is, is it's, it's toxicity in the systems. It's toxicity in the structures that we have. And up to this point, structurally, it has been contained in our communities. But the fact that it exists actually shows that our structures and, and systems are not set up to serve everyone. Well, somebody. Right now, the pressure is being felt on all of us because this coronavirus, it feels like a 10-ton elephant on top of our chest. Like, we are feeling the pressure of it. And all of the structures and systems, the weaknesses that already existed in them, what they were set up to do, which is really just to serve those who are in the, and I, I, you know, I have a whole analysis of this, but in the nobles class, in the class that we set up in America, that would be the equivalent of England's noble class, right? And then everybody else is the serfs. But in America, what we did was we racialized that system. But now 
with this coronavirus, we're realizing, wow, we actually, we do have a healthcare system that is only really set up to serve the few, the few with cash. It's a pay for play system as opposed to one that cares for the image of God in all. And so we're seeing that. We're definitely seeing that. Well, and I think the canary in the coal mine, to Beth's point and to shift it ever so slightly, it's, you know, it reminds me of the first time, like, I really learned about the work of James Baldwin and this idea that, like, racism is a cancer on everybody. You know, just because you think that you're at the top of the pile, it is toxic. It's toxic for everyone. And so what happened when you have an administration that proudly claims this sort of, we're all white guys, see us all up here, we're all white guys. Yes. You know, that's the toxicity of privilege is you don't heed warnings because your whole life you've got given the benefit of the doubt and second chance after second chance after second chance based on your privilege. You think it's based on your merit or ability. And that is a dangerous situation to be in when you face something like a global pandemic. That's when people ask, why is it so important to have diverse representation. Well, this is why. This is why, because one perspective is limiting. And our as our planet grows and our populations grow and our challenges grow, having, you know, one particularly privileged outlook, oh, it's so true. They just, they can't heed the warnings, man. They can't heed the warnings. That's so deep. And I, I think agree. that the the I mean, we just got finished with a major democratic primary run where black women in particular backed Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, we had this situation where you had black women had really come together. A lot of very, very high powered black women activists and advocates and leaders of organizations and institutions came together and and analyzed which candidate serves our community the best. And we said, Elizabeth Warren, out of all these primary candidates. But instead of voting for them throughout the South, instead of voting for her, rather, throughout the South, Black women and men and young people voted for Joe Biden. And the reason why they did that was because they did not trust that white women were going to vote in their own interest. Mm. Because when they looked back at Hillary Clinton And the reality that 53% of white women had voted for Donald Trump in 2016, they said, oh, no, we can't risk this. We can't risk voting for another white woman because we can't, we don't believe white women are going to vote for themselves. I'm wondering, like, how did you feel the morning after the 2016 election when you heard the news that Donald Trump had won? 53% of the white women's vote. Well, I'll go first because Sarah has probably a lot more to say about this than I do um, because Mm -hmm. she has such a personal connection to Hillary Clinton. I Mm. just felt really disoriented the morning that Donald Trump won. I remember laying in my bed at like two in the morning watching returns coming in. And it almost felt like if I kept vigil, if I kept watching this, it would change the result. Right. Um, You know, if I turned the TV off, it was done. But if I stayed with it, maybe it wasn't. And Mm -hmm. I walked into my workplace the next day. I remember seeing my boss at the time for the first time that morning. And we both looked just dazed. And Mm. we sat down and talked for a while about how... There must be a lot in the country that we truly don't understand mm. because we could not believe that this country had elected Donald Trump. And, and I just stayed in that state for a while. Okay, 
what am I missing? Because I really thought there was no way this would happen. I spent months on our podcast telling people, don't worry, America will not do this. <laughs> and America wow. did this. Wow. Wow. Yeah, okay. I think my reaction was not that different. I mean, I felt a lot of just real personal devastation because I had worked for Hillary Clinton because I already had my tickets to the inauguration of the first female president. It was also a very intense time because I was running for office myself. And so, you know, I figured out that I was going to win and she was going to lose at about the same time that evening. So I didn't even really get like a sort of a pure moment to celebrate my victory, which I worked very, very hard for. And I just remember collapsing on the ground in my living room when my husband was like, he's going to win. And like, it kind of hit me and just sobbing because I was scared. I was so scared. I mean, we'd spent, you know, by that point, everybody saw who he was. Yes. And that's the thing. That's, hold on, can I just say real quickly, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. We had all already seen who he was. And yet 63% of white men and 53% of white women voted for him. I think what I did not realize until it took me a long time to realize this because I, because I had worked for Hillary Clinton and I had personal experience with who she was as a human being. Yeah. It was very disorienting to see and hear how people were talking about her. Like I was used from 2007, like I was used to, she's not a great speaker or she's not that warm she's a little too, she's too ambitious. Should she have really stayed with her? Like I was used to like the sort of run of the mill issues. Like I got it. Like I, I thought I had like a good lay of the land. Yeah. And then it just became, well, she traffics in child sex slaves and she kills people. And it's just like, no less out of a little, like out of a diner. (laughs) It just became so out of control. And afterwards I realized like, oh, well, the more he revealed himself, the worse she had to be for it to be okay. And wow. that's why it shifted from she's a feminist to she traffics in child sex slaves. You know what I mean? Like, that's why it had to get so much worse to justify him. I don't think I understood the political villainous, is villainous word? Yeah, of Mitch villainy. McConnell. Like, yeah. villainy, just the like how smart that was to put the Supreme Court in play so people could use that as a justification to to vote for somebody who they had seen clearly who he was. I just don't think I'd put those pieces together. And I was devastated for her. I was devastated to not have a woman president. And I felt whatever remained of me believing that people vote based on some sort of logical calculation or policy examination was gone. I didn't have much of that left at that point. I kind of knew people made really emotional decisions, but that erased whatever remained. I I got like, okay, no, this is just, this is people make emotional decisions. They're busy. They're working hard. You have social media coming into play. You added the wash of the electoral college over top of that. And it's big. How did you feel, Lisa? Don't forget that's like, don't forget Russia. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that's right. How did I feel? Oh my Lord. Like, so when you said that you collapsed and you started wailing, I was, I'm literally sitting in the place where I was when I heard the news that Hillary had conceded. And I mean, I'm feeling it even right now, just talking about it, mm-hmm. but I was standing by my couch and I grabbed the edge of the couch and I looked at the TV as Donald Trump was, the, you know, they were, they were focusing on the podium where he was going to rise to the podium and, and accept his election. 
results um, become president. And I, I, my whole body literally shook. Like I, this has never happened to me before that moment. My whole body, I lost control of my actual body. Like it actually started to shake uncontrollably. And I said to myself, why am I shaking? And I said, what's going on with me? And I, I consciously knew it was like a flash, you know, a flash of like, aha came and it said, what you're feeling is you're feeling the permission for you to thrive, go from your body. Mm-hmm. Because we had just had eight years of the very first black president in America and under his presidency, he did not, actually, he was not liberal. <laughs> I don't care who you talk to. That man was not liberal. And I love him. I love me some Obama. I really, really do. But we were, I I worked at Sojourners for most of the time that he was in in office. And we were fighting some of the policies that he was putting forward and pushing him to go further. You know, as because of our faith, like his drone policy and, um, and also the way that he never like really had the energy after healthcare to really push for immigration reform, although he did, but he made so many concessions because he was the, you know, the guy who tried to work with everybody in the beginning that he got played by the GOP actually, you know, they said, okay, we'll work with you on immigration if you do this, if you deport people. So he became the deporter in chief. And then they said, psych, <laughs> like, never mind, you know, we're, we're not, we're not going to work with you, period. We're not going to put this bill that has, I mean, on the floor that actually did have the support of most of the House um, and had already been passed by the Senate. So, you know, Boehner held on to it and, and Obama got played. And so, you know, I, but during that time, still, even in that context, there was permission and not just permission, there was opportunity to thrive. There was access, maybe that's a better, even a better word, access to thriving. There were programs that were specifically set up to deal with the legacy of 400 years of oppression, My Brother's Keeper and other programs like that. There was attention given to the issues that impact our communities and many times our men with through mass incarceration and police violence, but it was in no way limited to men. And so as a black woman, what I know about the way that we fight for black women's rights, and not just black women, it's not it's actually all women of color. When you look back at the way we have women of color have fought for women of color's rights, it's never just been for their rights as women. It's always been for their whole community because we literally live in the intersection of our community's oppressions. So when you look at Dolores Huerta and Frances Harper and Ida B. Wells and Fannie Lou Hamer, you just name them all, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, whenever we have fought for women's rights, it's always been in the context of freedom for our people, all of our people. And so when I look back at that Obama era, I know that black women by far, were the most who voted for him. And when I look at Hillary Clinton, I know by far black women were the ones who voted most for her because given the choice, we knew that this was an existential, this was an existential choice for our thriving or not. And we lost, we lost our thriving. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what my body felt on that day. <sighs> Ooh, leave some space I have for to that. sit with that for a second. Yep. You know, I, I think the thing that I wish, wow, I just literally got three thoughts as I said that, but the thing that I wish that white women understood Okay, I'll say all three thoughts. <laughs> I'll say all three thoughts. I hope we all home. We got time. Okay, cool. So I wish that first of all, white women understood that their thriving is tied up in the thriving mm-hmm. of black women. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, because we are all fighting the same oppression, the same demonic force that is on earth, and that I believe is white male dominance. That white male dominance, that the literally the legal structures from the very beginning of America, from the very beginning of the colonial era, the first, did you know this? I, in my research for my next book, I learned this. I'm just looking at my own family history, which traces back to Maryland, 1682, 1686. Those were the, when the first two people in my family came to American shores. And They happened to, one was Ulster Scott from the Ulster region of Northern Ireland. They were Scottish. They were people who were brought to Ireland by the English in order to plantations, basically colonized Irish land for the English. And then the Irish rose up. So they said, oh, we're getting heck out of Dodge. And what they did is they went to Maryland. And then there was a Senegalese man who was from the region that intersects with Senegal, Mali, and Guinea. And his name was Sambo. In Senegal, his name was Sambo. It's actually a Senegalese name. It means second son. And so this second son was boarded onto a a ship that carried enslaved men and women across the sea and lost hundreds of them on the way. But he survived and he arrived in Maryland in 1686. And Maudlin McGee had already been here for four years, a white woman, again, from Ulster. And they met and somehow in the next year, they fell in love, had an affair and had a baby. And that baby's name was Fortune. And they, yes, they named her Fortune. How about that, huh? And, but that baby, because she was a mixed race baby born of a white mother, her life was forever shaped by the laws that have been created and were still being created for like the last 40 years in Maryland, the race laws, the original race laws in America. And those race laws were created in response to sexual politics. Those race laws were created to decide what would the status, slave or free, be of the mixed race children of white women who were having affairs and marrying enslaved black men. And so it was in that context that Maryland created and also Virginia created their first, and they were the first two colonies, remember, their first slave codes, their first slave laws. And they were gender bound. They were intricately connected to gender. And it's through the the procession of those laws over about 50, 60 years that you begin to see the privilege of white womanhood over black womanhood and over, over women of colorhood. And 
So, I mean, so I guess what, I, what I'm really, really fascinated by now is I'm asking the question of how does this all still play out today? And it really, really does. So I want to ask you, as white women, what were you taught about what it actually means to be white? Like, what were you, and I, and I don't mean explicitly, though sometimes people were taught explicitly, but what did you pick up about what it means for you to be white in this society? And then my next question would be what it means for you to be a woman in this society. I don't think I was explicitly taught much. I think that I picked up, you know, I lived in a place that was not diverse. I grew up on a dairy farm in rural Western Kentucky. And when I heard things about people of color, they were often dismissive they came up in our very complicated context of Kentucky basketball a lot, where everyone in Kentucky is an, uh, just obsessed with basketball. But we had teams that were filled with people of color, and everyone was both uh, celebratory of the team while being kind of frustrated at how few white players got to play on the team. And so it was just a lot of subtle cues that there is difference here, that it is important to keep our family white. When my aunt came into serious relationship with a black man and had a baby with him, it was very altering of that perspective. I was really surprised by the embrace of my family around that relationship. It took a minute, but after that minute, everyone became very loving and and i could see it softening them elsewhere and and so it sort of introduced me early on to the fact that wow we miss something by living in a place that is not diverse because when we have that proximity and that family connection everything changes and so those are the lessons that i really learned until i got to college and even my collegiate experience was a very white one so it's been a a long journey in my life to even think of, even to label myself as a white woman. It just was the default for me and almost everyone else that I that I grew up around. Yeah. Okay. So so I'm oh, sorry. I know I know that we also want to hear from the other person. <laughs> so, but I just wanted to say I grew up in Cape May, New Jersey, um, for high school and junior high, and I was our family was the only black family within like a 15 mile radius, literally surrounding our house. <laughs> and it was really disorienting because I came from Philadelphia, which was a like 60% black city and thriving. I mean, you had really, really well off black folk there at the same time as middle, a thriving middle class. And you also had folks who were poor and struggling and working. My experience of blackness was never just poverty. And, but when I went down to Cape May, oh my gosh, like, yeah, it was striking how whiteness was normative. Whiteness whiteness was the norm. So it sounds like that's one of the things that you kind of learned and are have to unlearn. Yeah, I get it. I think, you know, I learned a sort of more insidious narrative, which was that we're all the same. But because of historical situations and culture, culture is the word I used. I think, you know, after reading the, the work of Ibram X. Kendi, I was taught a very assimilationist mm -hmm. form of racism. That's what I was taught. This is culture. 
we're, you know, we're all the same, but because of culture, there's some lack and we need to really make sure that we keep standards and everybody, everybody, no matter what quote unquote culture they came from reaches these standards. So, you know, especially in my main, like my mother's family, I think that's the message. And, you know, my relatives still use that word. It was culture is different. It's a lot of culture talk. The other side of my family was more just overtly racist and continues to be. My beloved uh, grandfather, who just, I worshiped, he was, he was so loving and wonderful to me. And he was also incredibly racist. Hearing that Martin Luther King was a troublemaker that couldn't keep his mouth shut. I heard father that he would use. I I remember hearing him one time very specifically when I was watching Family Ties use the N-word and it Mm -hmm. stuck with. So that wasn't normal. I knew that that was that was a word we didn't use. And like, but I think that was reflective of like the history of that, that side of the family. Where were you guys? Like, where were you in the world? We're not, we didn't grow up very far apart. I was also in Western Kentucky. Oh, wow. Do y'all know that I actually have ancestors who were in, in Western Kentucky for like a hundred years. Oh my like God. they were, like they were really there for, a, well, maybe not a hundred years, more like 60 years, <laughs> 60 or 70, but they were there before the, the, before the civil war, all the way, you know, through the turn of the century. And then they ran, they had literally had to escape Kentucky. They had to run into Indiana, which is really oh. ironic. They were run out of Kentucky, I think by the Klan. I'm not really sure. And, but it's funny because they ran into Indiana, which was the birthplace of the Klan. Which the is Klan. Really, yeah, seriously. Really Keep funny. Running. I don't understand that. They ended up, they did. They ended up landing in Philadelphia. But <laughs> anyway, keep going. And I, you know, there's a part of my family history that I think about a lot. You know, I did the research. I looked through the slave census and figured out which of my family members owned slaves. And, you know, in my particular history, it was, it's the sort of the more common experience. You know, I grew up with a lot of Gone with the Wind, a lot of Gone with the Wind memorabilia and watching the movie. I mean, they showed it in my husband's school growing up. It's just bananas when you think about it. But uh, he grew up in Atlanta, so it's a big deal there, obviously. Um, And so, but that's the story we hear when the reality is a lot of families had less than 10 enslaved people, right? And that's what the situation in my family. And so there's always, I've never found really good sort of historical texts, I would like to find that about sort of that experience, because you get a lot of stuff about people who owned plantations, and you get a lot of stuff about people who didn't have any enslaved people, but you don't, that middle ground, I think, when I would imagine the relationships had to be very different, not more caring necessarily, just, but more just different when you're living in such close proximity with a smaller number of people. And I wonder, is like that where that sort of more assimilationist, insidious narrative came from. Like, it's good. We're, it makes us feel better to talk about it like this. You know, I know I heard a story in my family once that there was a an enslaved person who stayed past the Civil War and was like a part of the family for many years afterwards. And so, like, sort of that narrative was really common in my family. And yeah. so, I you know like that we're good people, we're caring, we're not racist. But there are just differences in the quote unquote culture that we need to be, that we're aware of and we just can't turn a blind eye to. That was the narrative that I grew up hearing. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice.
We're living in the kinds of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. funny because it reminds me of a conversation that I had once in downstate Illinois. I was there speaking for a Christian college and I spoke on the very good gospel and I was speaking on, on the reality that we're all made in the image of God. And as such, we are all created and called by God to exercise dominion in the world. And I ended up afterwards, we had a Q and A and this is a chapel, right? Like, so we had a Q and A with students and I mean, white male after white male stood up and tried to undercut what I was saying. I I love that stuff. That actually, I was like, okay, here we go. Let me take out my double-edged sword called the Bible and let's just go at this. And then also the history, the actual, what actually happened. And and we had, we had fun. Well, I had fun because I actually enjoy going to battle for this stuff, right? Like I think, I really do think that my, in fact, I know that many of my ancestors were actually soldiers and I think that's where I get it from, right? So, but afterwards when I was not, in that mode. I was sitting down, you know, we were, I was so ready to go. I was so tired. And this older white gentleman sat next to me and he said, can I talk to you? And I said, I said, oh, I'm so tired, but okay, sure. No problem. And so he said, you know, he started to to give me compliment. Oh, you know, you're so smart. (laughs) You're so smart. You're so intelligent. And and what you're saying is so, well, just, it sounds so smart, but he said, um, how do you think that makes us Southerners feel about ourselves? And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, how do you think it makes us feel for you to talk about slavery and things like that? I was like, I'm sorry, sir. How do you think it made us feel to, to be enslaved? How do, you think that, how do you think that felt? But even more than that, the next thing he said was, but we were good to our slaves. He literally said that to me. I know I get this stuff all the time. So this is actually, it's funny because I think most white folk think that that's that conversation is held around their dinner tables and that doesn't escape the dinner table. So black folks don't know, but the black folk who have interaction with white folk, like a lot, we get it. We do get it. And I hear that. And I've heard that a few times. I've heard, why don't you just get over it? Slavery only happened for 50 years. Why, you know, why don't you? Literally, somebody, literally a college student said, slavery only happened 50 years. Get over it. But this man said exactly what you said. That it's kind of that we were benevolent slaveholders. We were benevolent slave owners. And, what, and it literally is, <laughs> I literally rose from my seat. <laughs> and I, you know, we stood nose to nose. I mean, literally nose to nose. And 
in the most powerful, and I meant to be powerful, you know, tone that I could muster. I said, there is no way to be kind to someone that you are enslaving. It's just not possible. It's not possible. And so, you know, I think so. It's, so, it, it's, so what you learned about what it meant to be white was benevolent, normative, and advanced. Yeah, advanced. right, 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 right. Absolutely. That's it. That's the narrative. And it was just, and it's, like I said, it's just, it's so insidious, right? It sneaks right in there. You don't have to claim anything ugly, no. right? You don't have to be. And I, I was thinking before when you were talking about, and when you said the double-edged sword, the Bible, it made me really think about it, which is when you grow up and you, in a, especially I grew up in an evangelical setting and you learn all this stuff about the Bible and you learn like, oh, well, I always think about the example of circumcision. It wasn't some just random religious instruction. There's some evidence that, you know, it helped with hygiene or whatever during that period. And so there was some like good motivation. And I think, yeah, that's true of everything. (laughs) It's true of all this stuff. Like love your enemy as yourself, take care of the least of these is, is in the terms of 2020. It's self-care too, y'all. Like that's what's so hard to convince people is, Mm. you know, this other way that we think the, like, I think about hierarchy all the time since your speech at Evolving Faith, like this idea that of hierarchy and that that's really the best way. And that's how we protect ourselves. Like we just can't get it through that. No, it's like I said, it's toxic for everybody. These ethics of love your enemy as yourself and care for the least of these. And there is something deeper there than just, I want to make you do hard things. (laughs) I want to make you be vulnerable and do things you don't want to do. It's for your own good. The canaries in the coal mine, what's happening to most oppressed people, the people like that, that we can only thrive and survive and succeed based on how the least among us are doing. And if we yes. can't that in the midst of a crisis like the coronavirus, mm-hmm. then I weep for the future because this is, this is it. This is how we can see we are yeah. in this together and they're going to try even harder to do the same bullshit they always do, which is be afraid. We're not the enemy. They're the enemy. This is a, you know, a war for resources. This is, you need to be afraid. You can't thrive unless another person. And that's what's so hard about flattening the curve is that we're in this together. You are dependent on other people. Suck it up. Face the facts. <laughs> Do you think that that's why people literally like, do you think that that's why that's a th- okay. So, wow, this actually, it's kind of going a little bit from where I was thinking I wanted to go, but at the same time, it's actually right now. Right. Do you think this is why a lot of white evangelicals, white Pentecostals are not socially distancing? They are still doing, going to work. They're still going to church and they haven't shut down. They haven't shut down. Right, because it's, it's a theology of hierarchy, not a theology yes. of Yes, <gasps> yes. So they don't understand or they just don't believe that we are all connected. They really do believe that they are protected from the stuff that hurts the lesser people, the non-normative people, the non-benevolent people. Mm. Do you think that that's the case? I mean, I'm asking a real question. Because, I mean, like, what would make people go to church when the entire world 
I mean, I'm really for real. When the whole world is on fire and is dependent on people, like the fire can only stop if we go inside our homes. And it's not much. Um, I heard uh, a man who's on CNBC like weep last night on literally he was weeping saying it's not hard we're not being asked to go to the front lines of world war ii we're not being asked to go get out of the boat on d-day like we're not we're not being asked we're asked to stay with our with our families is that really so hard is it is it so hard for 30 days to go home and stay home it is hard but is it that hard can we not figure out another way? But yet it is white evangelicals in particular who are defying that order, who are saying we are stronger than this virus and really have no sense of responsibility to their neighbor, even though it was Jesus who said, you know, go to heaven based on how much you love your neighbor. You know, I think that there are people within that sphere who benefit from that hierarchy, who do adopt on some level the idea that they're just invincible because of the status they've created for themselves. And I think that there are probably more people who have lost all sense of power in their own actions. Part of living with this sense that being white is is the norm. It's the default position. It gives you permission to decide that most things happening around you just are. You're not creating them. You're just in the flow of them, right? And so I can't be that responsible for the history where my ancestors have been incredibly cruel. I can't be that responsible for the present. It just is. And I'm not that responsible for the future. And so that means I think what that God has ordained this because some people need to suffer. That's the history of the world and I'm just I'm just a bystander in it. And even if I felt an inclination toward action, what difference would my action make? I mean, hierarchy doesn't work, right? Unless a lot of people within that hierarchy are made to believe that they are on the bottom because they're supposed to be on the bottom. That's and I right. think that happens to so many women in evangelical <laughs> culture for white people. My grandmother, who is very evangelical, you know, sent me a, you need to read your Bible and not be afraid. There's also a sort of a side narrative they, they can tap easily, which is this is of this world. We are not meant for this world. Do not be afraid. None of this really matters anyway. You know, all that this is the gospel of sin management to get you to heaven. And that's what you really need to focus on. That's another sort of side story that gets told a lot too. Yeah. And I think that it has, doesn't it have also to do with like Christian nationalism the, or Zionism, the reality that I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, the reality that, you know, it's us who are going to be the ones taken in the rapture. This is probably pre-millennial cray cray. And, you know, we're all, we're going to be fine. This is a test of our faith, you know, we, so we have to keep going to church. But in that there is just such a lack of care for neighbor. And sometimes it's actually, it's funny because I, I don't think it's always like a conscious lack of care or even an intentional lack of care. I, I think most times people, neighbors not even on people's minds, they're just thinking about going to heaven, but there is a lack of care. There is not a carefulness about 
whether or not you become a carrier, not even whether or not you die, but just you become a carrier who then when walking through the supermarket the next week gives it to somebody else or 10 other people who then give it to three more people and you then create this web. That's actually, and it's not, this is not just about whiteness. This is about, I think it's, it's in the, it's something in our, in that, in that evangelical Pentecostal strain of the faith, which we also saw in Korea, you know, or I'm sorry, is it? Yeah. In Korea, right. Patient 31, right. Who the pastor knew that he was being told to to shut it down, but he didn't. And he didn't because, you know, we need to prove our faith by showing up. And so patient 31 showed up and she ended up giving the virus to a thousand people in just two visits. One thousand people um, were traced back to her. The first time she came, she didn't know she had it because she was just a carrier. She didn't, she had, she had no symptoms up to that point. And the second time she had symptoms, she had already been at the hospital and she still went and sat in that, in that crowd and gave the virus to others. So here's, so, okay, I want to move it a little bit forward. And I want to ask the question as women, then as women in alliance with women of color, in that situation, why do you think that women, white women, don't think to ally with women of color? So you and I had this conversation, started this conversation late at night, Evolving Faith. I've been thinking about it ever since. Yes. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this after the 2016 election. And I've watched my friends and had conversations and added some layers to my initial instinct, which is... Being a white woman Mm -hmm. and participating in this particular hierarchy requires not only an oppression of other people, but that sort of toxic self-delusion that works on your own soul, right? And so let's say on the altar of white patriarchy, Mm -hmm. you have sacrificed your career identity, maybe your sexual identity your children, you turned away children that were LGBTQ family members because maybe they married outside the race. Let's say that you, you just, you swallowed all, whatever's been asked of you, because this, this is your, you know, especially if you're talking about your economic independence, right? So if you have said, if what you've been told is this is your only path is through this man, and you must follow his lead because everything else depends on that. Right, right. And that's very, very toxic, vulnerable position to be in. And so you're going to make lots and lots of sacrifices, including relationships with other people you love, relationship with yourself, relationship with the wider world, relationship with, the, you know, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And I think what you see is it, the bigger that pile gets, the harder it is to turn from it, right? The, the bigger the things you sacrifice, then any moment of pivot requires for you to say, I did that for nothing. I did all that for nothing. It was a wow. lie that they told me. And that, wow. depending on who you are and where you are in life, that's a big, hard, emotional ask. I'm not saying it's not the right ask. It absolutely is. And the other way is death. And so... I don't know any way to dress that up. When you say death, what do you mean by death? Because that's a deep word. What do you mean? I mean, I think the other way is death. I think death, because when you are a part of a system like that, you can't 
live in love and connection and fully as yourself when you are a part of a system that asks you to make levels of sacrifice to oppress other people. Like I just, I don't think that's a, I don't think they live simultaneously together. I think it's so funny because I mean, I think that the reality is that most white women are not aware that they're doing that, right? Like most white women don't have a clue that they're in that system. I was talking with another friend of mine about this, and actually we're going to be talking about this publicly later on this year, but that white women are reared by white male dominance. Mm -hmm. They marry white male dominance and they rear white male dominance. And so there's a way that you're taught literally from the womb to survive it. And so it's like, this is the milk you drink from, from the get go. And so most women, most white women are not aware that that's the system they're in. I'm just, maybe a good question would be like, what, what, what was your aha moment when you realized it? I mean, I think they realize it, or I don't know if a conscious awareness, but they're aware because watch what happens when another white woman gets out of line. Ah, watch how quickly well, they react. Okay, so talk about that. Tell me about it. I'm not aware. That's what is hidden to me. As a black woman, I don't see that. What I see, this is what I see as a black woman. I see white women propped up and protected by their white men. But white women are telling me, no, that's not it. We're not protected. We're controlled. So tell me about that other side that we don't normally get to see. Yes. Well, and I'll tell you, it, it goes, it does go with my, with my aha moment. Cause I've really, I don't fall in line so well. It's just my personality. There's nothing superior about my moral character. <laughs> I think a lot of it is <laughs> okay. just, I, I mean, I grew up, I, all my friends' parents were married. My parents were divorced. I was an only child. Everybody had siblings. I had red hair and glasses. Everybody else was tan and blonde. Okay. I just was an outlier. And so there, if there was no way for me to fit in, then the other option was just to sort of lean into the ways that I did not fit in. And so the pushback was and continues to be, especially some, from many of my female relatives, which is you, you don't need to make people so uncomfortable. You know, you want to trigger me, use the word abrasive. You're being abrasive. You need to be quiet. You need to calm down. You need to think about other people more. You need to, and like, especially if there's a conversation about why should I have to do that when the men in our family don't do that? There's a lot of, that's just how it is. There's a lot of, that's just how it is. What do you want to, what do you want me to do about it? Yeah. That's just how it is. That's just how it is. There's a lot of debates in my family about food preparation. (laughs) Really? I mean, when my mother married into my father's family, the men sat around the table and the women reached in between the men to fill their plates and then would go just perch wherever they could for the food they prepared. And my mom was like, hey, you know what? We're not going to do this anymore. Let's do a buffet. Um, (laughs) And they did, to their credit, they moved to a buffet. But it's just stuff like that. Like it's, it's a million different ways that you, you should pick up the message. And if you refuse to take that message, then it will become more and more explicit. It's like Oprah always says, like, the universe will first kind of like nudge you with a feather. And if you don't listen, you'll get a brick upside the face. Well, the patriarchy works the same way. You know what? You will give you a polite warning. Step in line. Okay, you didn't take the warning. It's going to be harder for you this time until we're telling you that there's something wrong with you. I definitely got that message. What, what, there's something wrong with you. Why don't you think about these things? There's something wrong with you. Why don't you just shut up and do what's asked of you? I also have incredibly strong women in my family, women who sort of sent me, but it, you know, I'd be lying if I'd said some of those messages didn't came from, come from the same, same women that you're special, 
you should be able to do whatever you want to do. But also in, in social settings, follow the rules. Like it was a very mixed message. And what I heard from the men in my family, and I think you see this with a lot of white men who have daughters, you know, I realized that my, my stepfather, what was happening was he was so upset that I was not actually being treated fairly. He was trying to talk me out of that experience. Like he just didn't want to accept that maybe people were just treating me differently because I was a woman. Mm-hmm. And so he was trying to be like, well, what about this? But what I was hearing was that <laughs> I hear that too. I'm laughing because as a black woman, as a person of African descent in America, regardless of my gender, I hear that all the time from white people. So it's interesting. It's funny because it feels like, well, maybe the source of that, that line of thinking is actually white men who say it to white women. And now white women and white men say that to people of color. Well, maybe it's just this. Well, maybe it's just that. Maybe it's not about race. You know, it's interesting. So, I mean, I think that's what And I I was very lucky to be, I did not experience any sort of major trauma as a child that I had to overcome. I had, because I am white and because I am privileged, I was able to get an education. I met my husband who is is a good, good ally, best ally, very, very good life, um, who had once never, not one time asked me to tone it down or be different than exactly who I am. That was a real gift to meet him at the age of 19. Wow. Um, and so I think just all those things, but I, and so I, you know, I try to remember like, because I got those, I have those really important spaces where I am comfortable and supported. It's, it's important for me to push really hard in other areas. And again, it's my personality, so it comes naturally to me, but you know, I don't mind being in a group and being like, no, that's, we're not going to say that's a group of even all women. That's racist. That's sexist. You know, I think that I get the eye rolls, the, oh, here Sarah goes again, but, you know, it's got to happen. It's got to, and I think it, it's getting better. I think people are becoming more aware of um, the ugliness. And I think for better or for worse, the Trump administration forces people to face it in a way that they couldn't just sort of roll their eyes and think it's just some sort of extreme situation not reflective of the mass about mass of America. So I think that's what I've seen as far as, and I, I think that's particularly true of sexism with the Me Too movement and like just some really hard realities hitting a lot of people for the first time and women speaking up and saying, no, oh, this happened to me. So, I, I mean, I think that that's, that's just the beginning, obviously, but it is hard. Yeah. yeah. Always, always hard to say. To make people look at they don't want to look at. <laughs> Amen. I probably have a different lens because I am, by personality, calm and compliant and someone who uh, really prioritizes the needs of others in a way that is unhealthy that I've spent a lot of time working on in therapy. But I think, I don't know that I had one aha moment about either sexism or racism. I remember as a a first grader having a boy look at me and say, you know, you would be really pretty if you weren't so smart. And so I understood early on, yeah, that there was a choice to be made in kind of what kind of girl am I going to be? And so I picked smart. And I think that I picked smart 
probably because my mom is an incredibly hard worker and grew up in a family that was quite poor. And her deepest wish for me was to have an a easier life than she had had growing up. And so um, I worked for that. And, and I worked, my focus all through school was how can I get scholarships so that I can go to college? And in college, how can I get scholarships so that I can continue my education? And that's what I did. I was an RA so that my parents wouldn't have to worry about room and board for me. You know, I, I really just had that sense of the American dream that I have now come to understand was available to me because I am white. That in fact, if I did work hard enough, a lot of things would work out for me. And so my awareness of sexism deepened when I when I came into the workforce as a lawyer and I had experiences like showing up to court and being asked if I were like a nurse there to testify instead of a lawyer, you know, thing, things like that. I just kind of understood that wow. I was always going to be seen as especially young and, and because of my quiet demeanor, I didn't fit what people's vision of a professional was. On race, it has been an even more gradual unfolding. I was having a conversation with a church group that just read our book last night, and they asked me, where do you really struggle in political conversation in your life? And I said, you know, the the biggest struggle for me is talking about race and about the LGBTQ community because... I still live in an area that is by far majority white. It's much more diverse than where I grew up. I live right outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, but it is still a very white culture. And because of what Sarah and I do and this gift we have of of having relationships all over the United States and world with people we've never met, but who share with us very personal experiences. You know, I, I know that you have this experience too, Lisa. You wake up to, you know, 50 heartbreaking emails a day about about experiences that I've that I've never had. It puts me in an alternate information universe to the people in my community. I know so much more about what it might be like to be the mother of a transgender child than almost anyone in my immediate sphere of influence because our listeners share those stories with me. And so so that has been the lens through which I am kind of awakening to the limitations of my own perspective. And I'm trying to figure out, because we have this gift of an opportunity to share our thoughts with other people, how do I walk alongside other white women as they come to that realization as well, instead of saying like, oh, I've crossed over here to the other side. Now let me pull you with me. Because I think my particular personality lends itself to being more the, let, let me hold your hand and let's go together. Wow, this is this is surprising. This is hard. This makes me question a lot of things that have always seemed normal to me. My therapist calls it the spell of solidity. When you when you have thought you've been standing on this really firm ground and you realize all the fault lines in it. And so how do I just help help you and myself navigate that breaking of the spell of solidity around both how we're treated as women and how we particularly function in a world as white women? Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast.
The role of writers is to make seen what usually goes unseen. The role of faith is to help us connect with what is usually unseen. The world needs writers of faith to step up with extraordinary skill and connection to God's heart now. We need to speak truth and speak it in a way that brings clarity and aids discernment. Freedom Road is launching a seven-week online writing course in Faith-Rooted Writing for Justice. This seven-session course will cover Introduction to Writing for Social Justice, How to Tell a Great Story, How to Write a Nonfiction Book Proposal, How to Get the Right Agent and Negotiate a Great Contract, How to Identify Your Audience and Get Your Book in Their Hands, How to Build a Platform and an Audience for Your Writing. And finally, we're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in faith publishing. Facilitated by Lisa Sharon Harper and Marlena Graves, follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. for your journeys and the way that you have been mindful about your journeys as white women and maybe even are gaining in mindfulness about that. The thing that is striking to me, and I think maybe it's the next step, I'm not sure, but if, let's put it this way, since the 1990s, I've been working in the arena of racial reconciliation, racial healing, racial justice, you name it, like race. (laughs) And I was explicitly taught by white men at that time that when I spoke about oppression, racial oppression, that I had to do it in terms and in ways that white people could swallow, that they could accept. And so I actually didn't talk about oppression. I never said the two words, white supremacy. Those never came out of my mouth. Ironically, it actually was after Trayvon Martin that I wrote those those two words for the first time. And to, in my experience, they were the first time that when I wrote those two words publicly. And that was the first time I ever saw them actually written in a blog and, and said, this is what this is. I'm sure others were saying it. But for me, that was like breaking glass. And it was a, a dangerous. And I was even told at Sojourners, you can't write that. You can't write white supremacy. You know, you have to write racism, which is ironically, like, more acceptable. I was like, no, 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 because what I'm talking about is white supremacy. So there was a sense that you have to center whiteness and white sensibilities, and in particular, white male sensibilities, when trying to free yourself of oppression. And I think that the shift that happened for me, and I think for the universe, quite honestly, with the assassination of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, was the decentering of whiteness. Young people who eventually rose up into the Black Lives Matter movement said, hell no, I'm not centering whiteness anymore. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked for us. Why would we continue to do this, this stuff, right? And so 
it just reminds me of so many of the prophets who, of the prophets from our community, the people of African descent, and but also Latinos, Latino community like Cesar Chavez, um, Dolores Huerta, the people and the Filipino community who actually were among the first to begin to organize the Latinos and, and collaborate with the Latinos in the in the farm worker movement in, in California and the Chinese workers movement. Like there has always been a sense of why we can't wait. We can't wait for white folk to come around because we are literally dying. Like we are like the thing that has really struck me about the last few days. And this of course is, is, is giving away the timing of this recording today is that we are on the front end of what's going to be a multi-month journey. And most likely by the time this airs for us, um, it may be later than that, but I've, I've seen white folk, you know, I've seen Mitch McConnell. <laughs> That's like the thing that blows my mind. I saw Mitch McConnell stand in front of his of of the podium and tell sorry, this is my urban neighborhood imposing. <laughs> uh, it's like a, a police person just went by, a police officer. So um Mitch McConnell stood in front of a podium and said that he told his white GOP, almost all male senators, to just swallow this mm-hmm. the bill that, that came through the House that actually basically gave money to poor people and gave money to people who they would never normally decide to do that. But now they're doing it. And I watched pre- the president, like the same guy who actually has been all about, you know, make America great again. And what they're really, and I asked GOPers at the 2016 convention standing outside with a clipboard, what are you dreaming of when you, when you think of when was America great? They named pre-New Deal. So they're thinking about the, the age before there was any social net. That's when America was great, before the social net. And yet that same president is actually, you know, saying, okay, so, you know, yeah, we're going to give thousands of dollars out to each person, like in America, each taxpayer. Well, why? Why is it happening? Because white people were impacted. Again, it's the canary in the mine and it's y'all are going down into the cellar. (laughs) You're actually seeing what we've all been seeing. We know, we knew what was coming and we've been saying for so long, we need a safety net because we're dying out here. We're dying. So the same in the same way that now the whole country is in danger, like literally we are in danger of having up to 2.2 million deaths in the United States as a result of coronavirus. And those deaths will not be racialized and they will not be classified. They will not be according to gender. White men, white women, white children will die just like everybody else and probably at faster rates because y'all are not going inside. Y'all are going into the cellar. (laughs) And so we have been saying for a long time, we need a safety net. And now white folks are, are granting it because they are centered, because they are experiencing it. So because they are centered, because whiteness has been centered, now we get to actually have a safety net. Yeah, all of that, I mean, on a, on a much lower stakes level, but I think in a way that is related, takes me back to my sort of corporate experience 
And the way that I learned to talk about the issues I really cared about in terms of making the workplace better for women and people of color in that like business case for diversity language, where we were bringing forward, we should do this powerful, white, wealthy men, because it will make you even more powerful and wealthy, right? That that this will inure to your benefit. And that's the reason to do it. And look, I participated in that because everything in my life experience told me that was the smartest way to get it done. And now... I'm sorry, let me just say real quickly, you learned that's how you survive patriarchy. Yes. That's how you work around it. That's how you deal with it. That's how you thrive within it, is you center it. That's right. And I think that's why, as I've stepped away from that corporate environment into whatever the, you know, the wild landscape that is podcasting is, I'm realizing that as a white woman, I'm probably a particularly bad leader on some of these issues because it is so ingrained in me to center the white male experience and to talk about these issues in terms that make white men feel really comfortable as we're talking about them. And maybe there are places where that work is good and important, but it probably doesn't put me in a leadership role. And I think that's another reason that sometimes you don't see white women stepping up because we think to ourselves, gosh, am I ready? Maybe I'm not ready to step up. Maybe I have so much more to learn here. I've My whole view of the world is being upended. And so maybe I need to be, I mean, I, I feel myself in this space now. Maybe I need to be a student before I can be a teacher on this. Well, but see, here's the thing is that I think, well, first of all, yes, you do need to be a student, but I don't think anybody's asking you to be a teacher. I think people are asking you to act. Nobody's asking any white woman to teach anybody. People are asking white women to walk, to march, to vote for the least of these. That's what people are asking. And that doesn't require you to teach anybody. If anything, it requires you to invite your other white women friend and white male friend allies to come and march and vote and let us, we do the teaching. We're good with that. (laughs) You know what I mean? We kind of got that down, but it's so I, I, cause I've heard that what you just said, I have heard from really powerful white women who I, who are actually, who are beginning to stand up and beginning to say, you know what, y'all, We've been duped. Like this is for real. We have to take the cloud off of our eyes. We have to. We have to sweep. We have to take the red pill. Uh, we have to take the pill that's going to give us eyes to see and begin to to get out of the matrix. But and so this actually, this is one one more question that I have for for both of you is, you know, what's the cost for you? What's the cost? of alliance with women of color. I mean, I'll tell you what I said to some white women who asked me that question in Brazil. And it was very soon after Bolsonaro won. And of course, a lot of people, you may not know this, but uh, you would probably know, but a lot of listeners may not know that Bolsonaro was elected mostly on the vote of white evangelicals and Pentecostals in, in Brazil. And he was, he tapped Bannon, Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon, Flew wow. to Brazil and actually served as Bolsonaro's campaign advisor. And so he's the person who got Bolsonaro 
elected. And his on the on three promises that the first people that he would he would make sure that that he attacked, that he contained, that he eliminated were LGBTQ people, indigenous people, and people of African descent. And the people of African descent make up 53%. Talk about that number, 53%, but it's true, 53% of Brazil. And he won based on that promise. So I was sitting in a room full of black and white women in Brazil and all the rainbow in between, because I have like 50,000 races and like that are enumerated races in that country. But the white woman, one more white woman rose her hand and said, what will, what will allyship require of us? And this is what I said to her. And I want to know what you think of this. I said, it will require that you renounce your whiteness. Mm-hmm. It will require that you, when given the opportunity to take cover under your whiteness, that instead you align with all the other women in your country, the women of color in your country and their needs. And so what do you guys think of that? Is that, how does that feel? Like literally even to hear that for you, what's the, what's, what does it press? What would you lose in doing that? And I think there's a lot of facets to this. What I was talking, what I was thinking about earlier is that I think it's when we talk about, we need to change now and what is our role to play? Mm-hmm. And and what has history taught us? I mean, I, I think there is an important moment, especially if we're facing a new crisis, to realize that, you know, we have made progress. We have the most diverse Congress, House of Representatives in history. Mm-hmm. We have more women, more people of color, more people with the ability, particularly in media. I think media is never yeah. seen. I always think about, there's a beautiful moment in one of Rebecca Tracer's early books where she talks about Katie Couric could ask Sarah Palin what paper she read because Mm -hmm. she was a woman and it sounded different coming from her. She could push her in that way. Mm -hmm. And she was able to do that because she was the first female anchor. And Tina Fey and Amy Poehler could make fun of her in that very biting way because they were the first female comedy writers. And Mm -hmm. we have people of color and, and positions of media and positions of influence in greater numbers. And that culture angle cannot be underestimated. And I say this a lot and sometimes it's flippantly, but only because I say it so much, I don't want people to get bored. I mean it seriously. The other voice in my head through the, my entire childhood was Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) It is not to be under, I call her mama Oprah. I watched her every single day at four o'clock. I don't remember the first time I watched Oprah. I always watched Oprah. Um, and so when you say, what does it cost to renounce whiteness? And I like nothing, not for me. You know what I mean? Like to me, that's just my mama, Oprah calling me to what I was meant to do. You know what I mean? Like I've got that language in my head. I'm ready. You know what I mean? Like that narrative There's two narratives that Americans get, the one that's 20 years ago that's in our government and the one that's 20 years into the future that comes from culture and and media. That's like you turn on a commercial and you're like, it's not the same country being run by Donald Trump. Trump. Like it's like so disjointed. Mm. It's this multiracial, like, you know, because they know they understand they're they're in the future. They see what the future of America will look like. Mm. And so I think just. 
it's multitasking, right? Because the truth is, sometimes we have to renounce our whiteness and be a student in some environments. Mm-hmm. In some environments, like home and family, we're going to have to step up to be teachers and say, no, this is what I've learned. And you're yeah, all going to listen to me now mm-hmm. because you love me. And because I am, I have more safety in this space than other people. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I have three sons. I think about white male patriarchy a lot. Yes. And yes. what I teach my sons is you were born into safety and you are called to be uncomfortable. So other people can have that same position. I am sorry if you get made fun of. I am sorry. It is scary. But that is your responsibility. Mm. And, you know, I think that so it's just we have to be adaptable and we have to understand when it is our place to sit back and listen. And we have to understand when it's our space to touch up and and stand up and push. It's difficult because a lot of you know people shut down in the face of shame. And that's just a psychological reality. Mm -hmm. But you can hear more. When I'm pushing my stepfather, I can I can get into some pretty shaming language because he knows I love him and he knows I don't think he's a bad person. So I can push him really, really hard. Mm. You know what I mean? But like, I can't just walk up to a stranger on the street that I don't know. It's all about connection and relationship and understanding how hard can I push this person? Because everybody needs to be pushed hard. It just depends on where that's coming from, how much, that's what I've learned from Beth. You know what I mean? Like it has to, there has to be a foundation of trust and connection, whether it's in a community setting or a class or a church or a family or a personal intimate relationship mm-hmm. so that you can, you can use the currency of that trust to push people, help people, guide people, stand with people as they face some really hard truths. So you just, but you said that there's no cost. It doesn't cost you anything. Is that really? I mean, that's, again, that's just my personality. I I like like Lisa, I thrive on it. (laughs) No, I get that. But But here's the thing. I'm wondering, Sarah, I'm wondering if it's actually the reality that in many ways you already, like you already had to renounce white patriarchy, or at least the expectations the white patriarchy put on you as a white woman to be contained, to be small, to shrink your voice, to shrink yourself, to make more room for the white male. And so you already had said no to that. So in some ways, it makes you more already trained in saying no. Well, and, and already, and not I was really sacrificing less, right? I yes. was earlier in the process. That yeah. was not as big a ask. It's not as big a ask for a college student or a woman in their twenties mm. to start renouncing that bit by bit because I wasn't giving up that much yet. Right. You know what I want to see? I want to see Susan Collins renounce it. Word. Mm-hmm. Word up. <laughs> I want to see Susan Collins renounce it because right. she, she. Oh, like what she did last year with Brett Kavanaugh, what she did was she literally made it all clear because this white woman betrayed other white women in order to keep her power that was given to her by white men. And so she, she literally, literally aligned, allied with white men against white women and and ultimately black folk and people of color because shifting the balance of the court, going back to the court from earlier, ultimately what that really does, it doesn't only 
put Roe v. Wade in peril, which is literally, many people are saying is almost dead because of the court and court rulings. But it also puts Brown versus the Board of Education in great peril because never in the history of the Supreme Court in the 129 years of of the history of the Supreme Court ever has there ever been a majority conservative court that ever protected the rights of people of color? Not even one time. Mm. Not once. So Brett Kavanaugh's appointment, which was orchestrated by Susan Collins, was also a betrayal of people of color for her own power. I think that Susan Collins so encapsulates a lot of the experience of white professional women because, you know, what I internalized as I went into my corporate law position was that I had sort of a a bank account of credibility. And I started out with a really low balance compared to all of my male colleagues. And every time I made a decision to advocate on behalf of other women or just for myself, I was losing, you know, I was spending those dollars in my bank account. And every time I did not do that or or stood up and made a decision that benefited the patriarchy at the expense of other people, I put more dollars in that bank account. Mm. And it got really easy to convince myself that what I was always in the process of was building that bank account for the day when it was really the right time to spend it. Mm. Wow. And so that's why I think it's difficult to come out of that teacher-student dichotomy Mm. and just go with Mm. action because because everything I'm wired for in my life is hierarchical. I am always one or the other. When have I experienced just being an equal at something? I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in the context that I've been operating in. Now, are the stakes of all of that much lower for me than for people of color? Absolutely. It is also why I am still not great at this and why I still have so much to learn and why I do need to be led by women of color because my upbringing puts me in that Susan Collins bank account space. I know so many women like Susan Collins. I've been Susan Collins. We say, okay, I'm going to go along this time because I need to be at the table for the one time it really matters. And you lose track of when it matters. Believing that you're doing, you, you believe that you're doing this for other people. <laughs> and it, and you just lose the grounding that, you know, at some point, I'm just filling my bank account and there's no purpose anymore. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened in that moment. Because what she did was she literally, it was literally her voice that tipped the scales of the court for the next two generations. Yeah, and it's something that I will never get over. The the Kavanaugh situation, it makes my stomach turn every time I say his name or read his name on a Supreme Court opinion. And I also feel like I have a very profound understanding of what she did and why she did it. I wish she hadn't. I think it was wrong. And I also get it because of my life experiences. Okay, y'all. So, so what do you imagine then 
alliance with women of color will require of white women and Susan Collins-y kind of white women mm-hmm. in 2020 specifically? You know, I think it will require a willingness to put some of our most treasured personal relationships at risk because white men really struggle. I I think of my husband listening to this conversation. He will struggle. He is a loving, caring person far along the path of understanding privilege. And still, that question that man asked you when you stood up and powerfully explained to him that it feels worse to be enslaved than than it could feel to hear about other people being enslaved. That is that is the pervasive reality, I think, in marriages, in friendships, in father-daughter relationships, in uh, pastor-parishioner relationships. And so being willing to introduce some incredible tension into those relationships through the way we vote, through the things that we teach our children, through the way we participate politically, through where we put our family's dollars. I think that that is, I think that's the cost for a lot of white women. And and I think in Sarah's terms, you would say, that doesn't cost anything. And in a way that that's right. You know, if you have perspective on the entire world, that is a very, very small ask. And it is an emotional ask. And we all experience those emotional asks to different levels of intensity, I think. Here's the thing, too. The positive spin I'd like to put on it as we face <laughs> a sort of whole new crisis going into 2020 is, you know, it is hard to exert social pressure. It is. I, I agree to that. You know, I leave conversations crying. I get so mad. I cry. I cry a lot. So that's just my default. But, you know, it is hard to push people. It's hard to have tense conversations, even if you're a person like me who just sort of thrives off those kind of things. It is. I get it. I do get it. And the good news is social pressure really works. We are highly evolved that when people we know and love and care say that's not going to work. That's not the right thing. I've watched it happen with social distancing. Mm-hmm. I've watched me look people and I've lo- loved in the eye and say, no, that's dangerous. You have to stop right now and then fall in line. You know, mm-hmm. there is, you know, it's a whole thing about like, if you just put on people's dang power bills, how they stack up to their neighbors, it affects them. Right. We are highly evolved to live in groups and pay attention to whether we're on the inside or the outside of a group. Now, the bad side of that is we've seen over and over again racism, sexism and the groups we create based on those classifications. But it's that, you know, it's this sort of thing I've been talking about a lot. You just turn it ever so slightly and it looks differently, which is also once we get past the sort of critical mass of like, oh, no, well, now the group's doing this. You better fall in line. And it's going to take a lot of us pushing that critical mass saying, no, now the group is, we don't do that anymore. So you want to be on the inside? You want to be on the outside? Because the group now is, we don't treat people like that. And we think carefully and we talk about race this way in this household. I think about Nancy Pelosi with, I don't, we don't say hate in this house. That was just yeah, I love that. <laughs> We're saying, we don't talk about hate. I mean, it's just going to have to be a very intense values, but it's, you know, we are capable of this. We are capable of this. And it doesn't take 100% participation to make it work, right? Some of us will carry the load at other times and some of us will need a break and some, and then somebody else will pick up the load. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, 
you know, you can see evidence of that throughout history. And it's not, it's going to be a, a, a back and forth. It's not a straight line. We're just, we're going to keep with all our might trying to, I would say steer the cruise ship, but cruise ship is a really bad <laughs> thing to think about right now. The middle of yeah. a pandemic, But we're just going to keep moving in a few degrees at a time. And it's going to, it's the small acts that add up though. The small acts feel more risky because they are the ones that add up and have the most impact, right? And to keep continue working on those attitudes and advocating for the policies, we need the policies that actually have impact. And so we need to change voting habits and we need to help educate those we love about what that power exchange looks like. And, you know, I, I, I believe that we will continue to make progress. I really do. I think coronavirus is an accelerant to everything you just said, Sarah, because there is enormous social pressure right now to take on a cost on behalf of your neighbors, to pay for a service that you're not receiving right now, to, you know, to to really to stay home, to not do things you want to do, to not go places that you want to go, to not interact with people you want to interact with. We are in an ethic of sacrifice for the first time in my life um, as a whole. And because of that, I do think that there could be a dramatic acceleration of our ability to truly care about one another in both our household conversations and on that broader policy-oriented level. And let me just say that the the stakes are high. Mm-hmm. They're incredibly high. Like when when you talked about, you know, the Susan Collins woman who is, you know, storing up her bank chips, <laughs> storing up her, her deposits for the time when she's going to use them and make that big withdrawal. Now is the time, like right now, this year, 2020 is the time because we are facing both an existential crisis, a physical crisis in our nation, but literally the imagining, imagining four more years of the kinds of policies that have been passed and the impacts they've had on communities of color, this is an existential moment for us. We literally, there is actual belief and literal talk within our families of if Donald Trump wins again, what nation do we want to move to? Because we probably won't be able to be here for very much longer. Like I've literally had that conversation in my family a few times. A few times. So this is an existential moment that is the moment for white women to lay their chips on the table. Mm-hmm. Well said. We want you to stay here, Lisa Sharon Harper. Don't you go anywhere. We need you here. I've been saying I'm going to stay. I'm staying. But I mean, I want my mama to be fine. And I want my, I want my nieces to actually have a life. And I'm not sure that they literally can with four more years. Well, here's the thing I will say about particularly evangelical white women, which we have a lot in our community, really cash in those chips and having a hard time. I think that, you know, the fundamental miscalculation of the white patriarchy, particularly sort of in the Christian moment is sort of the, um, the fundamental miscalculation that happened with abolition. It's just, there's just parts of the Bible that are really hard to argue with. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's so true. He is always a compliant soldier. And they've been teaching these women 
that your main source of value is caring for the family and this mother child. This is where all your chips are. And then they separated families at the border. And that was a real breaking point for a lot of evangelical women who've been, who were believing with sincerity, the things they were taught. And then we're tried to told to say, Oh, well, just kidding. We didn't mean it for this time. And it's not going over real well. So I think, you know, that's another real source of hope. As I see going into 2020, we get messages constantly. I thought good Christians vote a Republican. I now understand that's not true. I'm paying attention for the first time. I voted Democrat for the first time. I changed my registration to Democrat for the first time. You know, just, I think there's a real awakening of you told, I I believe these things, these teachings, this Jesus has served me and I'm going to follow him, not you. Cause that's what you taught me to do. And those teachings are pretty clear. The least of these could not be more clear. And so, you know, at Grace, I think social cost, many of them are putting their chips on the table. Well, let's pray. We can all pray. And actually, no joke, I'm praying hard. (laughs) Thank you, ladies. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we won't flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. Freedom Road.